Hey, everybody. Welcome to The Aged Americans. I am your host, Jerry Wan, and thank you so much for joining us on this episode 59 featuring the amazing Kim Pham, the older sister, part of the duo behind Omsom. You've heard the conversation with Vanessa just prior to this on 58, and now join us as we talk to the older sister and share her story, or her side of the story, rather, on how they got together um, and, and started this amazing thing called Amsam, the sacrifices that they went through and what they are excited about as they look towards the future that is so bright for them. Thank you so much to Kim for spending time with us and for creating this amazing company and community that we can all be so proud of. Excited to hear this conversation with Kim. So without further ado, here it is, my conversation with Kim Pham. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Eurasian Americans. I am your host, Jerry Wan. Wherever you are, and whenever you're listening to this, we wish you all the health and happiness in the world. 2020 has been a crazy year, and I think that's a wild, wild, wild understatement. Um, we're recording this at the very end of June. Um, people, please put on your goddamn mask and make sure people around you are wearing it and stay home. Uh, the bar can wait. Um, Disneyland can wait. All things can wait. Um, and, and so if you're hearing this in the order the episodes have been uploaded in succession, um, you'll notice that our guest today looks a little bit like our guest from the previous episode, and that is because they are sisters. Uh, today, we are so excited to have with you the second of our three fam sister compilation or series and talk to Kim, one of the two co-founders of an amazing new startup focused on bringing Asian food and Asian flavors into your home uh, through the amazing sauces at Omsam. Um, Kim, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I, I don't know if I can live up to Vanessa, but here we are. <laughs> yeah, it's. I, I think sibling rivalry is is, is fun and it's interesting. Um, and, you know, I, I didn't intend for it to happen this time. I, I gave you guys both the option to schedule time to record, and, and she happened to pick the, uh, the morning slot. And um, <laughs> I, I am the younger of two siblings, as, as is Vanessa. And um, unintentionally, when we did this with the Soul Sausage Brothers, the younger went first as well. So uh, we'll, we'll chalk it up to me being the second child, um, wanting to overcome our second child inferiority complex by <laughs> going first. So um, well, welcome to the show. Um, we're excited to have you because I think when we look at your background and, and we'll get to your sort of your your professional background where, where you came in, I don't think anybody would have ever really guessed that you would have ended up in the food space, particularly not in the, the package CPG space. Um, not to say that any of us need to follow a linear or even a curvature path um, that is predictable in our career paths, um, but really curious to hear from your side and, and your version of how things happened and how your life has um you know, given you the joys and the highs and the lows and the challenges for you to end up at a place where you can proudly co-own a business with your sister. Uh, and not just that, but do it in an homage to, you know, the place that we all call home and to try to broaden uh, the grow the pie of acceptance of our food and the uh, the different palates and the amazing things that we were lucky to grow up with and to make it, you know, part of the mainstay, um, mainstream, not just American, but, but global palate. So, um, Share with us a little bit about how the Fam family uh, moved to America. Um, how did that happen? Where did you guys end up? And tell me a little bit about your early childhood years. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so my parents are refugees from the Vietnam War. So 
my mother, I believe, actually was sponsored over to the U.S. And then my father, um, they actually met, they met in Boston. So they kind of emigrated separately. Um, and then my father was a, a boat person um, who came over, I believe, in the late 70s, early 80s as part of kind of that first wave of boat people. Um, mm-hmm. And so, yeah, they, they met in Boston, um, I like where they both were going to school. And they actually have a really cute story. Basically, my mother was a waitress um, at like a, a local restaurant. And my father was this like love struck college student who like went in every day and like stared at her, which I'm pretty sure in 2020 is really creepy. Um, <laughs> but I'm sure back then, you know, I don't know. But yeah, they they met and fell in love despite all odds. Um, and then, yeah, shortly after um, got married and then had me. And so, um, I'm the oldest of two. Vanessa's, uh, I believe we're 22, 23 months apart. Um, but wildly, wildly different creatures, very, very different creatures. What makes you say that you guys are very different? Um, I think we, so we're really similar in the sense that we have a lot of the same loves, obviously, like a love for food, which is why we ended up kind of starting Omsom, um, a love of, you know, proudly owning our identities, um, a love of travel, a love of culture, like a lot of those things are quite similar. But if I kind of had to distill our differences, I would say that like each of us took a different learning from our parents. So like our parents were really like really lovely, um, really incredible folks, really, I would say unorthodox for Asian, Asian parents. Um, but I would say like, yeah, despite us having the same set of parents growing up in the same home, going to the same high school, Vanessa's lesson that I believe that she took from our parents and their story was this idea around like working her work ethic. She works super hard. Um, it just this like work ethic that went into everything she did from her sports. Um, like she ran track in school and was like ranked um, in the state and probably nationwide. She obviously like smashed the SATs and smashed school and ended up at Harvard. She got into MIT, like, she really took this like work super hard ethic and like put it into her soul and into her body. So that's like her lesson. I would say my lesson that I took particularly from my father um, was around this idea of like individuality. Like one of the main things that I felt that I learned from him, he was like, I came to the U S that I could be whoever I wanted. And I just took that idea and ran with it. Like, my defining North star as an individual is like, how can I be different from everyone else? How can I be the most true version of me in the most OTT way? And I took that and ran with it. So we each took like a different yeah. learning and then kind of like went really extreme with it. But um, I think at the end of the day, it makes us like really different as individuals, but also perhaps hopefully very complimentary um, as co-founders. Sure. I, I think it's fascinating because um some some of our listeners may know by now that I have a brother who is about a year older than I am. And similar to you and Vanessa, when you share the same exact genetic code, live in the exact same house with the same parents and generally share in the same activities in the same right. school system, how the hell can two people be so different, right? And mm-hmm. and, and that I think is is a is a lesson that in humanity, um, you know, for our parents who had to deal with two very different children as a parent of two children myself now, too, it's mm-hmm. just it, it's a lesson that I think we all should as a society understand. This is why exactly why you sh- we shouldn't hold one rubric of success over everybody's mm-hmm. head and say, if you don't check these boxes, you're a failure. 
And you got to let people be authentically themselves and define mm-hmm. their own success, right? And, yeah. and, and so I, I think that is an amazing lesson. And I think that is very fortunate lesson that you learned from your father. Um, I'm sure, you know, given his experience in Vietnam and coming over here and starting anew and um, particularly in Boston, where it is a city of education and where you have to believe that education is the pathway to charting your own future. Um, he had the wherewithal, unlike many first generation Asian parents, to believe in individuality, to teach you those lessons of be who you want and, and make it happen, um, which is, an, you know, not, not to say that it happens all the time, but a lot of us are growing up in, you know, study hard, go to this school, do this job, get right. this degree add these letters after your name and then check your set um, without ever really thinking about, well, does that mean that you're happy or that you're just somebody else's version of success? Right. So I I think that is such a cool insight, Kim. Um, So, so having those realizations growing up in, in your home in Boston with your parents, um, how did you choose to end up in New York for college at NYU? Um, What did you want to study? And what was that transition like going from, Boston suburbs that probably wasn't as diverse as Mm -hmm. 14th Street, which is probably one of the most diverse places on the face of this planet? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I guess like, so just kind of back to the individuality thing really quick, like, yeah, growing up, my, my, my father was particularly like, just, he really wanted me to be a unique version of myself. And, and to be honest, it was, I had no choice, right? Like I was the first, I was the oldest daughter. So I was the first of my entire family to go through like the American school system. Um, English was actually my second language. Like I didn't learn English until I went to school because I was raised by my grandma and like other kind of Vietnamese relatives. And so like my whole life, it feels has been defined by like kind of navigating uncharted waters. Like my parents very much believe in this, like, throw your head first into the deep end and that's how you're going to learn. And I've just continually kept doing that. Um, and over time it went from, it went, it turned away from being a necessity and more so being something that I actively enjoy and actively sought out. So by the time I was 17, 18 years old, I was like, I want to move to New York city. Like I love, I love the city and I knew I wanted to just get out of Boston, like no shade against Boston, but it's not particularly diverse. Um, particularly like the South, South shore area where I grew up. Um, I believe mm-hmm. our town was like 96% white. And so I think I was like, I'm ready for like the next thing. And where else can you go but New York City? And I remember like, Vanessa has a very different story. I applied to maybe like five universities, but I was like, if I don't get into NYU, I'm not going to college. Like, this is it. Like, that's the only school. And I remember we did like a school visit, you know, like senior year um, mm-hmm. where you do the thing, you go to admissions, you walk around campus, whatever. <laughs> And we spent maybe 25 minutes around Washington Square Park. And then, you know, I think we went for lunch afterwards in Chinatown. And my father pulled me aside. He's like, this is the school for you because this would have been the school for me. And immediately I was like, all right, like, this is it. Like, it's New York City. And I and I think it just came from like this shared love that my father and I have of just like we love risk. We love challenge. We love being uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. Um. And so I really took that lesson and like went a little far with it. Um, but yeah, I, I applied to NYU. Um, initially, I um, I applied to the Stern um, School of Business because mm-hmm. I was like, oh, business school, that will teach me how to start a business. I got into startups when I was 16. 
Um, and oh, so wow. knew that I was like, oh, I really want to stay in startup world, which, you know, startups are business. Um, and my parents didn't know. You're the, they're like, yeah, business school, they'll teach you business, business. And it wasn't until I got there, probably about one or two semesters in, that I realized like, oh my God, no, business school is like intent on getting you into banks or consulting. Like they're not trying <laughs> to teach you entrepreneurship. And it was a really tough time for me because all of my friends were studying finance and I'm awful at math. Like I hate to pull the I'm a bad Asian card because I'm like, what does that even mean? But I'm awful at math. Like I do not have quantitative <laughs> skill. I'm not data driven. I'm not hyper analytical. Um, and so I really struggled academically. I think I graduated probably with like a 2.7 or something. But what I realized is again, okay, I'm like, okay, the system isn't made for me. This system that I'm mm -hmm. in right now is not made for me. So I will do all that I can outside of the system to learn as much as possible. So I started interning for startups. I started going to meetups. I started getting really active on Twitter and um, reading kind of articles and blog posts that VCs and founders were writing and reading and just created my own school, like created my own curriculum through real life experience. And I think that's where Vanessa and I are super, mm. super different. Like she really excels in systems and she does really, really well because I mean, her, her resume speaks for itself. Whereas I was always kind of like the weirdo dark sheep um, trying to figure out my own path, my own education outside of um, the system. If that makes sense. But I think that self-awareness is amazing. Um, ironically, self-awareness is something that Vanessa brought up too, that she knows herself well enough to know what she's good at and what she's not. And, and therefore, that's what led her to pursue the path that she did because she knew she would thrive in it. Mm. And, and for you as well, same superpower, different results where you knowing what you would be good at and what you would not be good at led you down the paths of pursuing certain things that mm. or, or at least avoiding certain things that you knew you wouldn't be great at or not be even aside from greatness, just happy or, or be content yes. in structural systems. Yes. Yeah, so I think the self-awareness wasn't so much at like what I'm good at, but it was like, what do I love? Like, what can I get passionate about? And I knew yeah. like I, I fell into startups at 16 and I knew that like I loved early stage. I loved the zero to one, not the one to 100. I knew that I just wanted to be like on the ground floor of something really special. Yeah. And so that's what I knew. And that's what I ran after. I didn't know what I was good at. Like I interned in ops. I interned in strategy. I interned in social media and sales. Like I literally was just figuring my way through um, right. by trying everything. That was kind of like trial by fire. Like just keep going and, and we'll figure it out. Too, though. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what, what, was, what was the, um, what, tell me a little bit about the first startups that you were involved in at, at a very, very early age. Yeah, it's actually a really funny story. Um, so my junior year of high school, at the time, I really wanted to be a journalist. And so I was 16 years old, real, real eager and ambitious. And I sent out my resume to all these magazines and publications in Boston. Huh. And every single one of them got back to me and they're like, you're adorable. Like you're 16, you have no skills. Like, what are you doing? Um, but somehow my, my resume, which probably had like three lines on it, honestly, um, <laughs> landed in the hands of a startup in the back bay at the time, this was 2000 and geez, probably 2008, 2009. Um, they were kind of, uh, an, uh, a website around like hyper local search. So kind of similar to like what Yelp or Foursquare might be today. 
And the CEO got my resume and he's like, all right, yeah, you're 16 and you have no skills, but you're young, (laughs) you're hungry. And you somehow like found my email on the internet. Like, this is interesting. We'll bring you on board. So every day um, I used to drive into the city with my father. Um, This was a summer internship and he would go to his office and I would go to mine. And I think it was a team of like, seven or eight, but I fell in love. I just remember being like, oh my God, I'm 16, but I'm sitting next to the CEO and they have me involved in meetings and I'm using the internet, which I fucking love. Um, And I just really, that just like hooked me. I was like, I I love this early stage thing. I love this like ragtag group of people building something against all odds. And that energy of early stage just really kind of like stuck with me. And so, yeah, I carried that with me. And so now here, here I am running my own thing. <laughs> Tell me about the difference or the, the balance that you had between your, your ears and your head about, you know, you love startups, you knew you were that the, the, the scrappy, let's just have fun and, and build something together mentality. Yet in, in, in it all, you went to the traditional educational system, you know, at, at New York, at NYU, a very hard place to get into and a very place to compete in. Um, and you sustained yourself through that environment and, and getting involved in a lot of things on campus. Um, it's not binary as many of us who've been through that process mm-hmm. understand you need, you can't just be the, you know, um, the Mark Zuckerberg hero story that we we idolize and we worship. That's probably not even true anyway of, you know, I found my passion, so I'm going to drop out of school to just go gung ho. Yes. Um, nor, you know, in, in all of our cases, to, to have gone to um, college and, and to go through traditional uh, jobs does not preclude you from starting something on your own later down the line. Um, but for some of our listeners who might be battling with that now of they have this idea, there is some traction, it's now a side hustle, maybe their parents are you know nudging them or in, in an un- uncertain um, economic climate, it's better to stay in school or whatever the reason may be. Um, what did you decide to do then? Or how did you decide to continue the traditional path of education and finishing school then? And with the perspective of hindsight now, how would you have approached it maybe differently, knowing what you know now? Yeah. Hmm. I'm firmly one of those like no regrets people of like, I'm, I am where I'm meant to be. So I, I wouldn't change yeah. anything, but I, I guess I'll say a couple things. Um, one, I hated school. Like if it, I mean, I, I love... New York city and the community that I found and the group of incredible people and the experiences that I had and NYU ultimately put me in the city and helped me grow as an individual. So like no shade against that, but like, I personally did not enjoy university at all. Like there were many times where I called my parents. I was like, I want to drop out or I want to transfer. I'm just like, this is not it for me. I just don't want to be a banker. And to be completely honest with you, like I stuck through with it because I, found a way to make it work. I was an RA on campus. So ended up saving a lot of money um, by, mm. by doing that. Um, but also I knew that like it would break my parents' heart if I didn't finish university. You know, they, they like you said, sacrifice is a big part of a lot of our stories. And as a first generation Vietnamese American, like they would be devastated if I didn't get my degree. So, you know, knowing that that was what I was going to do, I was like, all right, you know what? I will do the bare minimum, not, not the bare minimum, but like <laughs> I will do what, what I need to do to like, you know, fulfill that requirement, but everything else in my body, like in my energy will go towards learning about startups, learning from founders, mm. broadening my network, um, in the ecosystem, uh, running student clubs that can help me 
further build my network. Like I was really just focused on that. Um, so I guess like I would say for folks, it's like, look, I'm not going to sit here and tell you like that, you know, a lot of folks, you probably know this in like the business, um, podcast, like business, uh, wisdom world will be like, if you love what you do, you'll never work a day in your life. Like quit your job and like do it hustle, you know? And I'm, I just think that's bullshit. And I also think that's oftentimes coming from a place of privilege, like not 100%. a lot of folks. Like I know my family does not have generational wealth. Like I don't have a chill hundred thousand from a rich uncle to help me build my business. And so I need to do, I need to do what I need to do to make that happen. So like I was an RA in college after college, I like worked for several years to build up money where I could just be able to make the jump. Right. Like it's really, really important to acknowledge that privilege is a very big piece of entrepreneurship. Um, but even if you can't like quit your job, quit school, whatever, to, to, to make the leap, like there are still small ways in which you can continue to learn and de-risk your own journey. Mm-hmm. Like, so for me, I started working with VCs just to better understand like, oh, how do venture capitalists think about good companies? How do VCs um, evaluate startups? And like, what can I learn from that process? Okay, cool. I started working with founders, like started interning and realizing like, oh, these small companies means that I can sit alongside founders and and see what they do, um, learn from their habits, um, learn what it's just like to build a company, build a culture. So like there are still ways that you can kind of within whatever your kind of restrictions are still continue to like learn and, and push your your side hustle, your company along. And I just think it's like finding that intersection between like what's possible and like doable within your financial socioeconomic situation and with still like, you know, taking risk and, and furthering kind of like your heart and your business along. You, you bring up a point that I 100% like my, my brain and my smiles were going all over the place. You were saying it <laughs> is, is, is the lack of context and a lot of this hustle porn and all this bullshit, yeah. you know, um, work hard, you know, um, and, and if you look at in, in the, the blogosphere, the podcast universe of, the people who tend to rank very high on certain, you know, indexes or, or or what many would consider to be household names in the world of business advice or whatever, they don't look like me and you. They fit a very mm-hmm. specific stereotype of what they look like and what their background is. And not to take away anything from what they've achieved in life, because it is really impressive. You don't know what it means or you don't know what the experience is of growing up an immigrant. You don't know what it means to not feel like you belong when you walk into a room or for somebody to actually ask you, you don't belong here or do you belong here? Um, and, and so it is that context that I think people are starting to finally realize that not all advice is good advice and that much more important than the content of advice or perspective, it is far more important through which context that is shared through because even between me and you, I have privilege that might not be available to you because I am a man, right? Mm -hmm. Like it's just, it's reality. So how do we get around that? How do we fix that is to amplify your voice as much as humanly possible and very many others like you who look like you, who share your background, who can say, look, I can go from one generation from my dad coming over here in a boat as a refugee to saying, we're going to take over the world, right? <laughs> like, and, and, and that story is far more valuable than the, you know, the, the, the average Caucasian man who 
says the same thing and regurgitates a lot of the same, you know, hustle porn that exists in the universe right now of, you know, try harder, do this, do that, you know, um, it's all, you know, everything is, 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 uh, in, within your control. And wow. while I agree, a lot of things are within our control. If you're systemically disadvantaged or if you get oh, yeah. a, a, a really, really unfortunate or unfair starting position, how do you ever overcome that? And and so I, I hope that we are in 2020 at an inflection point where, um, especially to all the younger brothers and sisters listening out there, like seek out people who look like you. And this is not a plug to listen to my show. I don't care if you do or not, mm-hmm. to be honest with you, but go find stories of people that have similar experiences than you. Don't be ashamed and don't try to mimic, for God's sake, Get rid of this toxic mindset of assimilating into this culture where you'll never fit in anyway. You'll never be purely accepted. Go to bookstores. Go listen to other people's podcasts. Find people on LinkedIn. If you see somebody that looks like you and you want to learn from their journey, do that. Um, I, I shared this story, Kim, a, little, a few times on the show. And um, the, the, there was a specific point. Uh, that I can remember very vividly of why I decided that I needed to start this show. And it was, I, I was in the car listening to uh, Damon John's podcast. So Damon John, the founder of FUBU, he's on Shark Tank, mm-hmm. very successful guy in his own right, uh, not an immigrant, right? His own challenges of coming from a single mother family in Queens, understandably so, and very impressive, but not an immigrant. His interviewee was Brian Lee, formerly of The Honest Company, yeah. um, started LegalZoom, big in the VC world, right? And so Damon was, and, and I'll paraphrase because I don't remember the exact dialogue, but um, Brian was asked a question about what about his childhood experience informed some of his habits and views and his things in his life that drove him. Of course, you have immigrant parents. You see them hustle their face off. For us, you have no choice but to succeed because you have to make good on their sacrifice. Mm-hmm. Brian said that, and because the host was not an immigrant himself who understood that struggle, there was no follow-up to that dialogue. There was a bit of a weird pause, and then the conversation went a different direction. And the reason I bring it up, I listened to it, and the very first time I listened to it, I paused. I was in the car, and I, and I turned off the speaker, and I said, that's, that's the secret that we're missing. I want to know what about his immigrant experience helped him get to where he is because I see a current American dude that looks like me who started LegalZoom, who was working with whoever building these companies. And I want to know that I can do it too. And just that notion of if you have access to somebody like Brian Lee or another immigrant successful person, why aren't, why isn't anybody asking him those questions that make our shared experiences the secret sauce. And so I looked around, I researched and I couldn't find anything. So you come to a place of, well, shit, I got to do it myself. Mm-hmm. Right. So that's how this podcast started. And it's like light bulb moment was I'm going to talk to as many Asian Americans as humanly possibly can about their own journey. And I don't need to talk to all the Brian Lees of the world. Right. Because that is one definition of success. Mm-hmm. But I want to talk to every single other person, different genders, different countries, different everything. Because if you're living this experience, that means there's some little kid out there who's doing it too. Mm-hmm. And, and so um, 
I wanted to share that with you because I think the context is so important to what we're talking about here. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and we'll talk about context again when we actually talk about what you and Vanessa are building now, because you could have chosen to build a company around anything, but mm-hmm. you chose something very, very, very specifically. So um, share with us briefly your lessons that you learned going from New York to London, where you spent your post-college years. What Because so you went, so let, let's track. you mm-hmm. <laughs> child of immigrants from Vietnam, from boat refugee, growing up in a very, very, very white Boston mm-hmm. suburb, then to New York City, which is a very, very, especially, you know, West Village, like very, very diverse and almost like artistically weird and unique diverse. <laughs> then off to London you go, which has its own different set of, you know, socioeconomic, racial, different sort of environments. Um, what was that like being an Asian American woman trying to succeed in that world, particularly in the finance and tech industry? Yeah. So basically as I was graduating, um, you know, classic Kim, I was like, how can I keep pushing this? Like, how can I push my experience? I had studied abroad in Prague and I was like, I want to keep like pushing this. Like where, where, how can I keep getting uncomfortable was kind of the, the North star there. So, um, mm. I was interviewing for VC roles. Cause at the time I knew I was like, okay, I want to start my own business, but I don't feel ready yet. Where can I go 10 X my learning? And I think venture is a really great way to do that. Cause you just learn from a ton of different companies, sit alongside some really smart founders um, and so I was like, okay, cool. That's what I want to do. So I started interviewing for funds in New York and San Francisco, but nothing really resonated. Um, they were, you know, just, I was going to be one of like four associates and they were all like really kind of cookie cutter two year programs. You go mm-hmm. in, you learn a little bit and you leave. And I was like, I kind of, how can I keep pushing this? And so I, through a friend of a friend got connected to a fund based in Dublin, Ireland. Mm-hmm. Um, it was literally three partners in a room in Dublin. And they were like, hey, we see this thing happening in the US. We really want to bring it to Europe. Can you be the first one to help us build it? And I just wow. love that. I like fell in love with this challenge of like, what I um, my role was head of platform. And so they really wanted mm. to bring platform over to Europe, um, to early stage venture in Europe. And I just fell in love with the team. And I fell in love with this role of being like, hey, I'm 21 years old and no one's ever done Mm. this before on the entire continent. Like, that's insane. (laughs) Um, Why wouldn't I jump at that opportunity? So my parents were confused, but supportive. I think they, you know, by then they were like, Kim's a little weirdo. She likes the internet. It'll take her wherever it's meant to take (laughs) her. Um, But I was like, hey, there's this role in Dublin and and soon after London. Um, You know, I really want to go work in this venture fund. And my parents were like, what the hell? You've never been to Ireland. And I had it. But I just really, again, wanted to challenge myself, go somewhere new and and learn something and build something from scratch. And so, yeah, I joined Frontline immediately after school. Um, I was with the fund for over three years, moved to London um, as a result of it. And it was just a really incredible experience. It was like one of the best decisions I've ever made in my life. Like, I think I learned a ton professionally, just having to build and define in many ways what platform Mm. means um in in europe um i feel like i got to work with some of the best people in the world and i got to travel a ton like just living in europe and bouncing between dublin and london and building out like a whole new life a whole new friend group just like a whole new me again was just like the most delicious challenge that i love and i look back so fondly on um 
so yeah, I, I would say like overall the learnings is that like I it doubled down, like I doubled down on becoming a founder. I realized like as I was sitting alongside these incredible founders that we were investing in, I was like, I love my job supporting you, but I want to be you. Like, I don't really want to support you anymore. I kind of want to be you. Yeah. And um, I think when I hit year three, I was like, I either pit, I either got to piss or get off the pot, right? Like yep. I'm either in this and like, I'm going to go become a founder and take all my learnings and like put it into execution. Or I will stay in venture in this incredible role with this great company and hopefully maybe one day get to partner. Mm. And I just, yeah, I was like, I love venture and I love frontline and I love London, but what's more important to me was always this North star of like, I want to build my own thing. So, um, I, I left that job and, and then I went backpacking for eight months through Latin America, which was a lot of fun. <laughs> and I recommend everyone should do it at some point in their life. And then, yeah, when I got back, it pretty much was like, I'm going to start a business. <laughs> what, was so life changing about that trip. It was, it's a long trip. Um, yeah. with it's, you know, I mean, w- words that come to mind when you hear about these long backpacking trips are like, you know, self discovery and epiphanies and nirvana. Mm. Um, what, what, what did you learn about yourself on that trip? Yeah, my goodness. Um, so I, I will, I, I took this trip because I noticed that like, so Americans are not very good at traveling. Like, oh we have this like thing where we're like, we have two weeks a year. Right. But like I was working in Europe where five weeks is the minimum. And all of my European friends had done extended travel, whether it was a gap year or they did like a summer, um, au pairing somewhere. Like everyone seemed to have done like extended periods of travel. And I was just like, you know, like my family traveled a lot growing up, but it was like, you know, like seven, 10 days here, you know, I studied abroad one semester. So I was kind of like, I know I'm about to, I'm not about throw. That's not, that's the wrong word. I knew that I was about to like go heads down on a business. Cause I knew a business was going to like eat up my life. So I was like, why don't I, why don't I go travel? And mm. at the time, um, my partner and I both were American and we're leaving our roles in London. So we're like, let's, let's go to South America. And, and yeah, like as cheesy as it is, you know, we did have our, you know, eat, pray, love moment, you know, where <laughs> it was, you know, eight months with someone that you've been dating for six months is no easy feat. Um, particularly, yeah, yeah, I know I was 24 or something. It was, he's amazing. And like, we, we stayed together, um, we're no longer together, but like we, I think I learned a lot about, um, you know, just traveling by myself and with a partner, um, Uh particularly like through Central America and South America. Like we weren't in like all inclusive resorts, you know what I mean? Like we were in hostels and we were backpacking and we had, you know, we're doing 20 mile hikes through Patagonia. And I think I just learned a lot about myself, the things that I, I value. Um, I learned what it's like to be empathetic and um, like caring and vulnerable for another human being, which for a long time, I, I live in a very selfish place. Like I'm the first to admit that, like, I think the flip side of being a hyper individual and like caring about individualism deeply is that it also can mean that you can be selfish and self-centered as a person. So that was um, a reckoning of my selfishness was to like live and travel alongside someone else. Yeah. But you have to learn it one way or the other. And, and right. there's, I mean, not, you know, spending eight months on, on the road, learning new things and trying new, new, new foods and, and, and not having your head, you know, swamped in PowerPoint and Excels and, yeah. you know, stuff, capitalism <laughs> really at the end of the day, 
is, you know, not, not the worst way to have, uh, you know, spend eight months of your life. Um, you, you came back and, and went to work, um, in New York, um, from, from frontline to backstage, which is, you know, sort of two opposite words. But, um, if, if you look at the makeup of those two teams, they also look very differently as well. Um, obviously it being in, in Europe, um, you know, where, where diversity is a different conversation, but you went to go work specifically at, at a fund that is made up of and invest specifically in underrepresented founders. Um, and, and now you are two underrepresented founders, particularly working in a cultural context of trying to promote Asian food. Um, what, what did you learn from that? And what did you, um, were, were there certain moments in, in that lesson that you still think about as you build this business? Yeah, absolutely. So, so when I got back to the U.S., um, so I don't, I don't know if Vanessa kind of told you, but like we had our aha moment while I was traveling, actually. So oh. Vanessa um, met me down in Bolivia when when uh, we were down there. Um, that was always the plan, and we were just we were in we did what was it Lima, Bolivia? Yeah, we did Lima and Bolivia. Um for I think a couple weeks. And I was like, yo, like I haven't seen you in months. Like what's up? I'm, I'm backpacking. And she was just kind of like, Hey, look, I've been doing consulting for almost two years now. I kind of want to die. Would you potentially want to start something? And I kid you not, Jerry, I have been waiting for that moment for like 20 years of my life. Like I have always wanted to start something with Vanessa, but I just felt like I was waiting for her to kind of get comfortable and get to a place where she could kind of make that leap for herself. But I was always like, yo, like we're, we're meant to be co-founders. We're meant to be co-founders. So it was just this wonderful, like life affirming. Yes. Of like, she's finally thinking about this. Awesome. So when I returned to the U S I pretty much knew that like, all right, cool. Like Vanessa's excited, but it's going to take her some time. So I was actually nomadic for about a year after I mm -hmm. returned, um, splitting my time between LA, San Francisco and New York. And part of that, like during that nomadic period, I was working part-time for Backstage Capital because I was just super in love with the thesis that Arlen Hamilton, the founder, um, you know, was, was telling the world of just like, hey, like the, the archetype of the successful founder is no longer just straight white bro from Stanford, right? Like, genius and innovation um, can come from anywhere and anything. And in fact, like we're bullish particularly on those who are underrepresented because their grit is like no other. And I, I, that of course resonated with me. Like I'm the daughter of immigrants. Like I felt that message deep in me. And so I was like, okay, I know I'm going to be a founder soon, but I want to find like a flexible gig where I can continue kind of putting my skills to work um, while also kind of prepping me for my own move. And so backstage was a great fit. Um, I spent a couple of months there working part-time as like their platform builder, um, in residence. So just again, continuing to support underrepresented founder founders, hmm. um, and continuing to, to build out my skill set, um, you know, as someone who knows the early stage, um, journey. So yeah, it was, it was a lot of fun. It was just the most diverse team I've, and diverse portfolio I've ever worked for. Um, and I'm really, really thankful for that opportunity. Um, but like I, you know, Arlen knew going into it when I met her in LA, she was like, you're going to go work on your thing very soon. But she's like, hang out with us, <laughs> hang out with us, kick it with us until you go work on your thing. And so it was just a super supportive environment. Um, and I'm glad I got the chance to, to work alongside them. And, and they were super understanding when I was like, yo, I, 
I love this and I love venture, but I need to go build my own thing. That's cool. Um, tell me more about that aha moment you shared just about, you know, Vanessa coming down to meet with you. Um, you were asked by her if you wanted to do something. Um, was the idea of food and in particular the sauce that you guys, the sauces that you guys now are known for, was that the first iteration of the light bulb or where did it start when the idea to do something together was born? Yeah. So here's another thing that I'll bring up kind of tangentially. Another one of the things I hate about like a lot of the like startup hustle porn podcasts is that it's always this like super crystallized, like clear moment. It's never that clear. That's all marketing no, speak. It's iteration. So, yeah. Um, the aha moment was like spread out over probably a year. But it first started with Vanessa even being open to the idea of her no longer being in corporate America and her potentially taking a huge leap and investing in herself and investing in us. I think that was like step one. And that was in Bolivia. And I think we had like some vague ideas of like, what, what, like we literally were just like, what do we care about? And it was like, we care about food. We care about culture. We care about activism. Like it was really, really broad. And then when I returned to the US and I started to spend more time in New York, her and I started spending like nights and weekends, just totally in brainstorm mode. So I was living in East Village. Um, she was living in Soho and she would literally come like after work, she'd come from Maine around like 5 p.m. And then we'd work from like 5 p.m. until 11 p.m. Literally just like whiteboarding, sticky notes on the wall, just being like, what do we care about? And what can we throw our life behind for the next feasible, like, you know, five to seven years at least. And I, I think broadly, there's like a handful of ways in which businesses are formed. So I think there's one way which you see a lot of, which is like, we see these movements and they're going to intersect soon and there's white space and there's an opportunity. That's one way, <laughs> which is like a totally valid and fair and frankly, probably very profitable way of building businesses. And then there's another one, which is like, I can't imagine a world where this doesn't exist. Like exactly like what you said, where you're like, no one else is doing it. So I'm going to do it. And I think this like mission-based um, motivation is definitely where Vanessa and I came from. Like we just, we spent days walking around supermarkets. We spent days like going to markets. We spent days just jamming oh. with each other on like things that we care about. And we ultimately kind of whittled and whittled and turned and whittled to eventually what Amsam is. Um, how we came about it as individuals is very different, but the, but the North star is the same. Um, which is just like, we want to reclaim and celebrate Asian cuisines and therefore Asian communities and Asian culture. Food is something that we, well, for immigrant kids, for refugee kids um, in America, particularly of Asian descent, food is something that we almost synonymize with our mothers, yeah. uh, the people who fed us, our grandmothers, or our maternal figures who, um, because as, as you get older, um, you know, you, you start wanting the comfort foods when you're, you know, feeling sick or homesick or hungover or whatever it is. And any sort of physical weakness, you, you seek the foods that um, we remember very, very fondly. Um, you, you, you now have an entire business and an, mm -hmm. and a, and a extremely successful one at that in food, um, Vietnamese food as sort of your anchor and, and the sauces behind it. Uh, how much of your parents were involved in the ideation stage of building this? And, and at what point did you share with your parents that this was going to be the thing that their two daughters were going to be, uh, you know, taking on? 
Yeah, I think a lot of the motivation um, and the drive behind Omsom came from them, but they actually weren't super involved in the early days. Like, mm-hmm. I, I can't speak for Vanessa, but like, my relationship with my parents is very much like Kim kind of does what she wants. Like, and it's been the way since <laughs> it's, it's, I wish it was not that way um, sometimes. Um, but that's been that way since I was very young. Like I, you know, would show up one day to the house and be wearing like hot topic and be like a total goth kid. And they're like, well, Kim just does what she wants. And, you know, like one day I would like come home and be like a punk rocker, go in advance, like, you know, work tour. And they're like, Kim does what she wants. I'm going to move to New York city and work in the internet. Kim does what she wants. So I'm really lucky that over time, I think my parents are just like, Kim generally knows herself and does things for herself, even though we don't fully understand it. And we're just going to be supportive, if not a little bit confused. I think Vanessa probably has a, a, because she's the youngest and she stayed home um, longer because she was in Harvard and therefore very close to my parents um, location wise. I think she has a much probably closer, um, more kind of integrated relationship with them. So I'm sure, you know, they were hearing her call uh, maybe like once a week on her way back from my apartment where she was just kind of telling them um, what we're working on. Um, Mm. So yeah, I don't think they were so much involved, but they were definitely supportive. Like I think they were mostly just like, are you sure? Like we're, we're down to help you. And like, we're down to like cheer you on, but are you sure this is it? food like okay you know like we thought that you all were gonna get you know like what color jobs you know um but i i think they really ultimately trust us which i think is really rare um they trust us they trusted our judgment um and they just knew that like our kids are independent because we raised them to be so we kind of have to accept all that comes from that at what point did they when you say that the that the support in the earlier stages was different than what it is now, um, what was the process like for them to eventually not accept, but see that this business was for real, that it wasn't, hey, you know, this is a fad or like, hey, they need to go through this as a part of their journey. Mm-hmm. Um you know, the, the joke in the Korean American community is like, once you're in the Korean newspaper, then your parents sort of have to accept <laughs> that, like, that's the thing. Um, what, what was there? What, what was there a process for your parents mm-hmm. to sort of see it the way that you guys saw it, that this was serious, that this was profitable, and this was worth pursuing with all your heart? Hmm. Yeah, I don't know if there was like a specific point. Um, and maybe or maybe there wasn't, they just didn't tell us. Um <laughs> But I think, you know, they were like, oh, this is like a fun little thing that you're working on. Okay. And then Vanessa quit her job. And they were like, oh, okay. Because they always knew, like, I was a weirdo. They were like, Kim's backpacking through Latin America. And now she lives in three cities and she doesn't have a home and she lives out of a, a luggage, right? Like, so I was, they were always like, Kim. But I think once Vanessa was like, hey, mom and dad, I'm leaving Bain, which for them was like, you know, to have a daughter that goes from yeah. Harvard to Bain, right? Like the American dream. Um, I think that's when they realized like, oh shit, it's like pretty serious. And then when Vanessa and I started, you know, like after a couple of months, like our savings ran out. Right. And so we had to side hustle. And so, you know, I'm doing like some contract work on the side, Vanessa's tutoring. We're like trying to save money at every corner. I think my parents are like, oh shit. Like these girls have the opportunity to be making like, you know, six figures at corporate Mm -hmm. jobs, but they're choosing this and they're choosing the side hustle. Like, 
Kim is out here like renting her apartment on weekends and staying with friends so that she can make like cash on the side. Like this is for real something they care about. And so, yeah, I don't, I don't know if there was like an official turning point, but I just felt like they were always pretty, pretty supportive. And now I think they're fully in it. They're like, Oh, you know, like now we're in the newspapers and things like that. They're like, Oh, this is like a real thing that they text their (laughs) friends about. But for a long time, they're like, Oh, Kim and Vanessa are working on a business. Uh, Tell me more about the side hustle. It, it's it's a part of every entrepreneur's journey that uh, conveniently doesn't get shared as much. Oh yeah, because we because we like to as, as much as the American narrative likes to focus on the hustle, we definitely enjoy more the that that turning point of like ah uh, you know the, the the light from heavens. But you, you shared with us like four things just now that were just mm-hmm. like to the average person, it's like wait a minute, you know, particularly if you look at both of your resumes of where you had been and what you were doing, like the amount of belief in yourself plus the humility that it required for you to say, this is worth it so much that therefore none of these things are outside of my, you know, level of pride or ego or anything because it's worth it. Um, for, for you, like what was that process like? Because as your parents believe then it's true you could have done something else and collected a paycheck while all the while I'm sure, you know, helping to build somebody else's dream. And this was yours. Um, what was, was that something you guys talked about to say, Hey, we're going to need to do this to make sure this thrives. Or was it just, it just, you, you, we do, we know what we need to do. So we're just going to do it. Oh yeah. It was totally rooted in necessity. Like I wish it was this like sexy moment. It wasn't, it was literally just like, we live in New York city. Like we have bills to pay, like we have rent to pay. And I think this is one of the like the most unfair disadvantages that privilege affords you or uh, sorry, the most unfair advantage that privilege affords you is mm-hmm. generational wealth. Like, and I, and like, you know, folks like you and I, we largely benefit from like the model minority myth. And like, I can't even imagine doing this if I were black and Brown and historically disenfranchised um, without access to capital and land, like black communities have been. Right. So mm-hmm. like, it's just crazy because Vanessa and I, and Vanessa talks about this really well, um, is that like, it's really, really difficult to enter into work with a mindset of abundance. I think that's like one of the key things is like walking in when you're building something from scratch, like you have to have conviction and faith in something much bigger than yourself. Cause that's what you're building. That's what you're grinding for. It's so much easier to do that when you're not worried about keeping the lights on, paying your phone bill, paying rent on time. Like it's so much easier to have abundance. And I felt like there were so many times throughout our journey where Vanessa and I were totally coming from a place of scarcity and you could feel it. Like when we were pitching investors, it's hard to sell the dream when you're like, fuck, like, can I, can I find a client who can help me, you know, like, you know, make this rent payment? Like, can I hustle together enough cash to be able to get groceries two weeks from now? Like it's, it was, there's a, there's this like tension, um, So that was really, really difficult for us. Like there was a period probably in our early days where Vanessa and I were like crying probably like twice a week, just being like, what are we doing? Like people don't believe in us. Like, and on top of that, like, are we going to have to move back with mom and dad? Like we, we can't pay rent right now. And we don't have like a rich uncle or like, you know, a house that we can sell or anything like that. We just we're doing whatever it took. So I know Vanessa was like tutoring, like doing SAT, SAT tutoring. I was doing some contract work for some VCs. I was doing ghostwriting. Um, 
I was Airbnb in my apartment. I was like crashing with friends for a little bit at discounted rates. Like it was, you know, like it was, it was hustle, but it wasn't sexy hustle. It was just like, you know, we grew up with immigrant parents who did whatever they had to do to make it happen. And now we're doing that too. And I think that was pretty hard for my parents to watch because they were like, you know, like you have excellent educations and like degrees and, but at the end of the day, they trusted us and they trust our judgment. So I think they, you know, kind of like grit their teeth a little bit and just, you know, made sure that like we were safe, but yeah. I I think that's the tough part. Um, cause our parents, they're always go to is we did that. So you didn't have to, why are you choosing to? Yeah. Right. Why? And, And I think the audacity of our generation is that we've gone from literal survival as the only need that they sought Mm. to dreaming the audacity of happiness and, Mm. uh, you know, enlightenment, even all the way to the top of the pyramid. Right. Like, yeah. And and we did that in a generation, which is kudos to all of us. Right. One generation, we flipped from boat to I'm doing this because of pursuit, not because of survival. And and you and your sister like chose to struggle like <laughs> survivalists, which is insane. Um, but you're right when you when you have safety nets, when you have uh, I don't know, mommy and daddy's credit card, like you don't the the mindset of scarcity is removed because there's no falling down. There's only right. up, right? So and and so you know there's there's um. It's it's really funny. There's there's a coffee mug that was uh we, we found when we were doing some leadership stuff and it's like, you know, I wish upon you the confidence of an average white man. Yeah. And you, we've all seen it, right? But I but I think what's not written on that mug, and it will never be, is that behind the confidence is the fact that there is no worry about the downside of things. Yeah. Right. That the person who has that confidence has that confidence because not because they know what they can achieve, it's also more so what they don't have to worry about. Mm-hmm. Right. So this is it's prevalent and it rears its ugly head in so many facets of life. Yes. Right. Um, unpaid internships, political internships, right. um, taking a gap year um, right now, like choosing not to work because of a pandemic or not, right. you know, choosing not to go to work. There's color lines and there's socioeconomic lines that um, have to be talked about when we talk about privilege and we talk about things. And and I think. In, in the different twist of privilege, it actually is so much more meaningful for the people who are observing you and learning from the Bam sister story as we live it is how much cooler is it and how much sweeter is the reward when you know that you didn't have to, right? That mm. based upon your collective resumes and experiences and the sacrifices on which your parents built your family that you chose to take the risk to build something that was so meaningful that this was worth it. And again, and I think this is, we have to, you know, know you did not choose a forever life of destitute. You could have said no more, let's go get jobs again. Mm-hmm. And, and so that is also a, a level of privilege for people who are understanding that might be saying, Jerry, you're full of shit because they're highly educated and they can go back to oh, jobs. Totally. Yes, I get it. Right. There is, but this is a choice. And, and so, you know, um, yeah, people, yeah, any, any entrepreneur who at any point can, if they want to swallow your ego, swallow your pride, whatever, mm-hmm. go get a job. Um, right. it will crush you, 
but you can. Um, it's a different scenario, but you got to do, um, you know, given the circumstances that, that allow you to make certain choices. Um, what has been the coolest, coolest, coolest part about running a business with your sister? Hmm. There's so many cool things. That's why I'm like struggling to find one. <laughs> I um, hope it's not because there was no cool thing to talk about. But. <laughs> no, I mean, <laughs> the coolest thing is just like, we know each other so, so well. And I, and there's, I having been in the startup ecosystem for a long time, like entering into a co-founder relationship is entering into a marriage, right? Like you just, it's so incredibly personal and it's so incredibly integrated and like, yeah. And just the fact that I trust her with my life, I trust her with the business, which feels like my life right now. Um, and it's just been so, so cool to ride the waves with someone whom I love deeply. Um, it's also been really incredibly rewarding to see her growth. Um, and I think it's because, you know, I've been with her since she was born 94. Right. Um, (laughs) and I just, I've seen her blossom into such an incredible leader and such an incredible, just like human through this journey. Um, like, that is just such a privilege to watch as like an older sibling, you know, just like, holy shit. She's like stepping into herself. She's pushing herself in so many crazy ways. Like her world is being rocked every day. And like, it's different for me because I came from startups and I spent a lot of time like adjacent to founders. And so I think I knew kind of a little bit of what to expect, but Vanessa really didn't. And she's just completely rolled with it and has completely just stepped up to the challenge and flourished even. Um, And that is just beyond in honor to watch and to live alongside her and to be a part of that journey with her. Um, because like everything that we do, we do for each other and we do like for the culture and for our families. And so um, I just feel like everything's aligned. Like there's, you know, the worst is that like, you know, ego comes in or like little sister dynamics come in. But aside from that, it's, it's like, we're, we're aiming towards the same place. And I think that's really, really hard to find that 100% alignment um, with folks. I think you're right because this is in, in many, many more ways than one um, you're, you're building more than just a business, right? You're trying to build something that um, can put your parents at ease for the rest of their life. You are trying to build something that um, you to both of you and your future families can really be proud of and point to and saying like, that's what we built. Um, not everybody gets to do that. And I think in 2020, given all the craziness that's been going on, um, I hope people are starting to realize more so than before that um, shareholder value is meaningless if nothing else works, right? People's right now, we're in a big debate of opening the economy because I don't know, livelihoods are important. Well, what's more important than livelihoods? Lives, right? But also, given particularly from the tough challenges of being children of immigrants, you need to make something of the sacrifice that they made for us. Like you need to build upon their work to make the world a better place. And not everybody has to go plant trees and to go save endangered animals to make the world a better place. Making somebody feel accepted and making an entire culture of people feel like their food belongs on the shelf of a market, not in the international section. 
mm-hmm. and to have it be featured on today and Thrillist and so many other household media outlets that have celebrated you guys in the last few weeks. I mean, come on, Forbes and TechCrunch <laughs> and Food and Wine. And Thank you. The, these are brands that are, you know, career making and validation granting entities that say these sisters have made it. And it's not because you made marshmallows. It's because you developed the thing that literally pays homage right now to start with three countries. And think about the endless possibilities, folks, if you're listening to this. How many countries are there back in Asia? How many different types of foods do we fall in love with? How many different types of flavors? They just got three right now. Three. Three countries, three flavors. And if you think about the things that, if you're thinking like, hey, man, they should make one about my country and my thing, and do that by 100, the world of possibility is endless. But it's not just about the product because there have been probably other products that are similar, not exactly the same, that are sauce-based and encourages, you know, um, people making food of a certain country or certain culture. Um, But you're building an entire platform around it where you're teaching people how to cook and what to cook and how to cook it and why you should eat this and when you should eat this. And, And part of that, which are ancillary parts of you building your business, are actually the evangelism of the culture that is going to make this so much more worthwhile um, because we are just one generation removed. And, and even I dare say some kids experience right now, the shame of having their food that their mom and their grandmothers pack for them yeah. and having to justify it at lunch and getting into fight with kids and the picking on and, and the ridicule. So um, it's not just sauce and it's not just two sisters paying homage to the culture. It is to give millions of people, um, the validation and the confidence that our food matters. So, uh, you guys are doing like literal life-changing work. Um, and, and I cannot wait to see what comes of it. Cause you're literally at the beginning of your journey right now. Um, and, and it's all upside from here. Um, congrats, the, congratulations to you guys on, on your early success. And, um, it's it's so fun. Um, I, I am excited to invite you back, um, you know, to, to share the together conversation with, with your sister um, and yeah. however we end up doing it. I think it's <laughs> going to be fun. Uh, you, you, you uh, not warned me, but you, you gave me the heads up that our conversation would be very different than hers. And I think it's been a little <laughs> bit different and I think it's been great. Like I said, you know, like we started off the show with every kid is different. And so, yeah. you know, um, this is now like the 50 something show that I've done and Ooh. every conversation is different and we go in a different direction. And, um, and, and that's what makes all this unique. And, um, and, and people, then the listeners pick and choose who they want to listen to, um, based on their background and whatnot. Um, for now it's, it's a see you soon. Um, but for, for this episode, Kim, I would love to close out the episode in the same way that we do all of our shows and is a, a tip of the cap back to the name of the show. Dear Asian Americans ultimately is a love letter to the Asian American audience from the Asian American audience and for the Asian American audience. So um, share with us something that you want to share with the community, something that perhaps you wish you had been told 20 years ago or something that you wish you could tell your kids 20 years from now. And so I will start the letter. And if you could help out us, help us out, finish, help us finish the show out um, by finishing the letter. Dear Asian Americans. 
I would say it's to celebrate your unorthodox. Like whatever makes you weird, whatever makes you different, it's totally okay. Asian America is not this like all-encompassing monolith. Like your uniqueness, whatever that is, makes you like powerful. And I'm very thankful that my father taught me that at a young age. And it enabled me to go on this incredible, profound, unique journey that led me here. But it was only because I had the faith and conviction in my differences to be able to do that. I think for a lot of folks that is rooted in a lot of shame and fear and scarcity. Um, But I just really hope for this generation and beyond that we can just find like power in that, in the unorthodox. So yeah, just find that thing or those things and and celebrate them. Beautifully said. (laughs) And, And know that you and your sister are contributing in a major way for people to feel exactly the way that you wish and that you, we all are working towards the, the, the way that people uh, should feel that they will feel because um, we belong here yeah. and our food belongs on every menu. Our language deserves to be spoken on every corner and people who look like me and you belong in every room. Should we mm-hmm. choose that path? Absolutely. And if we don't, we can go take a sharp left Call our sister totally up, okay. go start a goddamn sauce <laughs> business, and then be featured on today's show. And, and that's it. And if that's not the American dream, Kim, I don't know what is. So, mm-hmm. congratulations to you. Um, thank you again for sharing your story and your time. Um, we'll see you and Vanessa back here together very soon. Yeah. And um, I'm really looking forward to that one. So, thanks again for your time. Yeah. Thanks, Jerry. Thank you so much for tuning in and joining us on this conversation with Kim. Hope you learned a lot. Um, Kim has had an amazing and fun and non-traditional, to say the least, journey into entrepreneurship. And we are so excited to see and observe firsthand what her and her sister accomplish and, and how they change the world. If you found this interview insightful and fun or educational, please do share it out with a friend or two. Screenshot whatever you're listening to and share it on Instagram. Tag us at The Asian Americans. And you can tag me personally too at Jerry J. Wan. And you can always find and follow us on all your favorite social media channels on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and LinkedIn. Just search The Asian Americans. And on Twitter, we're just The Asian Am. The inbox is always open, whether it's on Instagram at The Asian Americans or hello at TheAsianAmericans.com over email. If ever you want to talk about anything, suggestions, questions, thoughts, comments, or even nominations for guests for the show, Always happy to talk to you and chat with you and even happy to jump on the call with you if you want to talk further about your own Asian American identity journey. Thanks again for tuning in. It means the world to me. I feel like I have the best job in the world to share these stories out with you. And until we meet again, I wish you all the safety, health, and happiness. Join us on Friday for episode 60 when we bring Vanessa and Kim together for a conversation with the two sisters behind Amsam. Thanks again. This has been Jerry Wan. See you next time.